Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org.nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy and I am pleased to bring to you chapter 24 of the book of Eov. As I mentioned, Eov is now taking on Eliphaz's third assertion, namely that things work out for the righteous and wicked in the end. That is, that's what Eliphaz says. Eov has other ideas in mind. We begin with this very difficult verse, which has seen many, many commentaries. But I think the sense of the verse is, in response to Eliphaz, is as follows. Why are the times, meaning the times set up for payback against the wicked, not kept, not stored away by God, why don't those who know him, meaning his prophets and wise men, see his days? I think the idea of eight and yom here means the times that God follows through with consequences for man, be they good or evil. And the use of eight here is similar, in my opinion, to that found in Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, in that famous poem in chapter 3, For everything there is a time set out, and there is an appointed time for everything God wants to do under the sun. As we will see when we learn Kohelet, God willing, starting July 13th of this year, 2009, the point is, that God eventually takes care of everything in his own good time, and we have only to trust and wait. But Eov is not so sanguine as Kohelet was. What Eov adds to his previous explanation of this topic, which is that things do not get paid back in the right time, especially against the wicked, is not only that it's a problem that sinners prosper without being punished, and therefore seemingly with God's approval, but that their sins cause, directly cause, suffering of the poor and the downtrodden, whom God had said many times in the Torah that he will protect, who God said that the cries of those people God would hear and he would respond to. So there are two sides to the same coin, which compounds the conundrum. The original question stands, why do good things happen to bad people? But the question of why do bad things happen to good people sort of disappears, but in a bad way. Because bad things happen to good people because God tolerates the actions of bad people, which causes bad things to happen to good people. Gvulot Yasigu Eder Gazalu Vayiru. They move the borders, they openly steal the flocks, and then they graze, or they graze the animals that they've stolen. The last part means that not only do they steal the flocks, but by brazenly having the flocks graze upon the stolen property, they're stealing the flocks and the property that the animals are now eating, uh, adding insult to injury. The word yasigu here with a sin is really an alternate spelling of the word yasigu with a samach, meaning to move back or to withdraw. In the ancient Near East, large stones called stila would mark the boundaries between fields. It would say, up to here is the land of such and such and so and so. But dishonest people would sneak out, or in this case, they would do it openly and brazenly, and they would move the stones to increase the size of their own property. They lead away the orphan's donkey and rope off the widow's oxen. In the Torah, the prohibition of lo tachbol, as we have here, means to hold 
in payment some some part of someone's livelihood as a collateral for debt. So if I owe you a thousand dollars and I can't pay off, you take my shirt, you take my car, you know, whatever it is that I really need to function. The word comes from the word chevel, which means a rope, meaning don't create a drag on someone by withholding their chariot or their grindstone or their shirt, which are the things that are described in the Torah, because that further prevents them from making a livelihood. Not only does it demean them, but by taking away their livelihood because they can't pay you, then they're certainly not going to be able to pay you, and they plunge deeper and deeper into debt. In Eliphaz's last speech, in chapter 22, he accused Eov of, of the following, which is one of the sins you, you did, and I translated it as you imprisoned, i.e. with ropes, but um, a better translation may have been you you set upon them these mortgage debts, these property debts, uh, you take away their clothes in collateral, leaving them naked, literally, or, and financially, and therefore you cause them to go deeper and deeper into debt. So here the sense is really, they take the widow, widow's oxen as collateral, leaving her unable to make a living, that is to work the fields, and ultimately, therefore, she can never pay off her debt, and just goes deeper and deeper, and enslaves herself. This is actually something akin to what's called uh, debt Pionage, which is uh, which was which essentially after world after sorry the civil war um, slavery while it was suddenly illegal and the slaves were freed in practice slavery was perpetuated on the blacks in south the southern part of uh, America why because even after they were technically freed by tilting the contracts and conditions in a way that the former slaves who are now sharecroppers could never be able to purchase their freedom. Um, they continued the slavery even though they were officially called sharecroppers. To a lesser extent, it also brings to mind something that happened a little bit later, 1800s, uh, which is called patronage, where, which is, uh, where train companies and other companies, they hired their workers and they encouraged the workers to live in these company towns and purchase company stores and the prices for living there and buying there were so expensive that they would seek deeper and deeper into debt, which ultimately led to, uh, labor riot, labor unrest and even labor riots. They cause the needy to stray from the road. All the poor of the land are forced into hiding. And, and we're, we're really talking about like kidnapping here. They really like, you know, come here, come here, come here. And all of a sudden they get kidnapped and they disappear and turned into slaves. They go forth like wild donkeys in the desert. Now, the intent here is not that they're really acting like animals or that they're not really animals. Rather, that what our author is doing is is recalling the blessing, if you remember, or a blessing as it was, uh, which was given to the descendants of Yishmael in Genesis. And he will be a wild donkey of a man, an uncontrolled man, a nomadic man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. So if we get back to the verse, these people behave like wild men of the desert. That is, they're lawless, they're pirates, they are... Uh, um, um, uh, pillagers in the in, in the wilderness as an occupation they seek their prey. Getting back to the verse, the wilderness for them is for food for the young ones. The word shachar, which we have here, means um, has the sense of that they seek they seek prey to rip apart. 
However, the meaning actually comes from its original form, which was dawn. The shachar is when the, the light first comes up, which is a time when people prayed. It was a time when people started seeking for things. And the word shachar, therefore, is then played off against the word arava, which besides meaning wilderness, as it literally means here, it also means evening and darkness. So we have shachar and dawn played off against erev or arav and evening, creating this idea that from morning to night, this is the kind of pillaging and pirating that they do. The sense of the verse is that these wicked people roam the wilderness in uninhabited places, like sort of like the roads that you see in the, in the, in the wilderness that you see in the Wild West movies. And there they prey upon people as they travel these wild roads and they enrich themselves and feed their families on their pirating and their uh, pillaging that they do in the wilderness. In the field they reap their harvest and the wicked despoil the vineyard. The verse, this verse, interestingly, the image moves us closer to civilization. We started by ambushing, or they started by ambushing travelers on lonely roads in the wilderness and the outskirts of civilization. And here we move into taking property from farmers and vintners in their fields. According to some, the word belilo means it's a conjugation, belilo, meaning they take fields that are not theirs. But I think that's just understood that they're stealing from things that are not theirs. So I like the word balil as a mixture of grains that they take from the fields of, uh, of the, these, uh, these vintners and these, uh, these um, farmers. Also note that while we read the word yiktsoru, which is uh, meaning that they reap, the consonantal text, that is the way the letters are written, is yaktsiru, which is nehifil. That's causative. That means that not that they reap the fields themselves, but they cause others to reap it for them. And this hints of uh, of, of the enslavement, which is going to come into full expression in the next verse. That is, we've been hinting at enslavement up to this point, but now in verse 7, we're really going to say this is what they do. They not only steal from people, but they steal people as well. They, the wicked, uh, um, they, they made, they make others spend the night Without any clothes, they, the poor, have no cover or, or shelter against the cold. Again, notice the hifil of the word yalinu. They cause them to spend uh, the night. That is, the they is the wicked. The target of the sentence, the object of the sentence, is the poor who are disrobed. And the images of destitution, uh, usury, bondage. Um, and this, again, returns to the idea of lo tachbol, not to take the cloak as collateral, um, and, and to keep it overnight until the debt is paid, which is a, uh, a direct transgre- transgression against biblical law. So Eov is, is again focusing on the fact that they strip people naked, which is one of the worst possible sins, whether they're doing it in debt or, or whether they're doing it in enslavement uh, or both. Also, notice the impression the naked are meant to spend, the, you know, are, are meant to spend the night without are made to spend the night without clothes. And now this is not a redundancy, because you might say, well, it's obviously if they're made to spend the night without clothes, then they're naked. But what it really means to say is, is not that they're, it's not just that they're naked, but they, they are forced into a status of people who are naked. They are turned into Arom, the naked ones. And we'll see a lot of this kind of poetic use in the chapter, that, that people are not just made naked incidentally, or they're not just turned 
into things incidentally, but by doing things to them, doing these horribly things, they take on a status which they can't shake off. These people who were stripped, they, the wretched poor, are soaked from the rushing waters of the mountains, and without any protection, they hug the stones. And one could picture the flash floods rushing down the mountains as these wretched people hold desperately to any piece of rock that they could find in an, any attempt not to be swept away. Now, one way of understanding this verse, and a lot of difficult verses, are, are, are in this chapter and the hardest ones we are, we are yet to get to. One way to understand this verse is that they, the wicked, rob from the already plundered orphans. The word showed means that they're already plundered and even though they're already plundered, they plunder them again. And continuing on, and against the poor, they destitute them with the debt collateral. They take away their possessions as a collateral against their debt. However, not only has he really stated this idea in verse 3 and 4, so it doesn't really add anything new, it doesn't really fit in with the next verses. Therefore, I'm going to follow the Ramban here, and I would like to say that the first, based on the Ramban, that the first half of the verse really means they kidnap orphans from the breast, that is, showed from Shaddaim, from the, from the breasts, meaning they steal babies while they are still nursing, turning them into orphans. Again, we have this status which is defined because they stole them from the breast. They have a status of yatom. I mean, it's obviously that they're now orphans because they're taken away from the parents, but they it creates a status which they can't shake off. Then matching the first half of the verse, which is about kidnapping, to the second verse, Amos Chacham, one of the great modern trans- translators, translates the word al here, Al-Ani Yachbolu doesn't mean on, but it means children. It's a short form of the word Olel, which means a, a an infant. So therefore, if we translate based on the way Amos Chacham is translating, we get they lead their infants of the poor. They lead away infants of the poor into bondage, or they take the children, these infants, as debt collateral against the poor people, which is very similar to the story of the widow uh, that, uh, that Elisha saved in chapter, uh, four of the book of Kings too. Uh, that essentially if you got into debt, they would take away your children as slaves to work off the debt that you could not pay off, which essentially turned them into orphans and, and, uh, turned the women, uh, into, uh, barren women of a sort. Uh, this focus, therefore, on child abduction really flows perfectly into the next verse. So I really, I think this is the best translation of the previous verse. And now let's go to the next one. Arom hilchu beli lavush ureivim nasu'u omer. Naked they are led off without or led away without clothes. And hungry they must carry the wheat bushels. Meaning they are turned into slave labor. They're stripped of clothes to prevent escape, perhaps, and they become beasts of burden, carrying heavy farming, require, uh, uh, you know, the, the burden of, of, uh, of uh, farming produce at a very young age. Ben shurotam yatsiru yikavim darachu vayitzmau. Between the rows, we'll see the rows of olive trees, they press olives. The word yitzhar means olive oil, so the verb yatsiru means to make olive oil. They trample grapes in the grape presses, yet they go thirsty. Meaning 
their slave drivers keep them from benefiting in any way from the fruits of their own slave labor. They cry out in despair from the populated cities and the throats of corpses cry out. Obviously the intent is that um, is that they're still alive but they are soon on their way to be corpses as they cry out in pain. But God does not spit out against it. That is, he directs no punishment at the wicked. He lets the wicked get away with him. Remember that, again, we get this movement inward of the evil people. They started in the wastelands. They moved to the outlying fields of farmers and vintners. And now they moved all the way into the center of civilization to attack cities, to carry off prisoners, to kill the inhabitants. What Eov is saying, as long as these people go unchecked, it's not just that they don't, they don't get punished if you don't punish them immediately. It's that they get bolder and bolder and the noose tightens and tightens and the innocent become more and more oppressed and civilization in general becomes more and more anarchic. That is the rule of law that God supposedly wants. He is allowing to be undermined and to be destroyed step by step by step, increasing uh, in, in, in a geometric way. From verse 13 now, through verse 17, Eov kind of gets onto a new idea, and he discusses three specific types of sinners who hide their sins in darkness. And these are the murderer, the adulterer, and the thief. This matches, by the way, the order of commandments 6, 7, and 8 of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, and don't steal. Those, that is the three types to be discussed of sinners, were amongst those who rebelled against the light. They did not recognize its roads, meaning the light's roads, the way of the light. Sinner one is the murderer. He rises up in the light to murder the poor and the downtrodden, the oppressed, and at night he is like a thief. Now, since this guy needs to be rebelling against the light, to hiding from the light, I think the sense of the verse means that he does get up in the daytime, but the only people that kills then are the poor and the helpless. It's like somebody who kicks a homeless guy. And he does this in the wilderness, so there are few people around, there are few people uh, uh, to, to say anything about it, or there's nobody to say anything about it. And therefore, when it's daytime, he murders, but he murders without any fear of being, he only does murder in a way where he is completely secure that nobody will bother him, and nobody will come looking for the person who was murdered. But when he's protected by the night, he steals into houses like a thief and murders people in their homes. He moves into civilization and night covers up his path so he can commit the murder that he really wants to commit. Sinner 2 is the adulterer. The eye of the adulterer sets a lookout for the evening, saying, No eye will see me, as he places a disguise on his face. Sinner three is the thief. He digs into houses in the dark. I guess he breaks into houses at night. In the day, they are sealed up by him. So he kind of hides away in different houses where nobody could find him. Meaning, uh, uh, I don't know, like a window, windowless houses, or that no, no light. 
So even during the day, he hides his stolen possessions, and at night he goes out to plunder people's houses. Ki yachtav boker lamot salmavet, ki akir balahot salmavet. Because for all of these, that is the murderer, the adulterer, the sinner, the, 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 the thief, morning is like darkness to them. When they can be recognized, ki akir, which really means when it becomes light, it is the dread of darkness for them. So to sum up, in the first section, from verses 2 to tw- through verse 12, the ways of the wicked are described as they go grow str- slowly but surely in strength and power. They are egged on by their success and because they do not get punished and therefore their actions transforms them from desert nomads to pillagers and attackers of cities. From verses 13 through 17, Eov defines the three primary sinners based on the Ten Commandments. And don't forget, just because the book was written in a way to make it universal, does not and to make sure that the audience could not did not have to be Jewish to appreciate the value of this book. There's no question that the author is clearly of the tribe, and therefore his religious education of the Ten Commandments shakes shapes the book. Of them, he points out that of these three, that they that these kind of people, the kind of people that do evil only at night. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure what Eov's point is. I mean, what is he trying to say? It could be, he says, that these sinners do their work in secret, which prevents them from being punished, and therefore they're successful. Um, I, I'm really not sure. And my not being sure is compounded by the fact that it doesn't really flow into the next verses, which, by the way, are among the most difficult verses in Eov, which makes them the most, pretty much the most difficult verses in all of Tanakh. And therefore, I'd like to say that from here on to the end of the chapter, except for the last verse, which is pretty clear, any translation I'm going to offer is purely speculative. What I am going to do, however, is suggest the following guide to navigate the waters of these incredibly difficult verses. And here is the guide. When the subject or object of the sentence is singular, that's referring to the sinner. The sinner is identified as a single person. When the subject or the object of the verse is plural, when we're talking about many people, that is referring to the innocent people or the people being oppressed by the singular sinner. So, with that possible guide in mind, let's read the next verse. Kalhu al pnei mayim tikkulal chelkatam ba'aretz lo yifne derech kiramim. He, the sinner, is fleet on the surface of the waters. That is, he's quick and fast. The image is of a pirate's swift and, and, and nasty attack. There, that is, the, the oppressed people, their portion in the land is cursed because of the marauding of the sinners. He, getting back to the sinner, does not turn to the way of the vineyards. And I think what that means is that the wicked person is so quick and so successful at making his uh, marauding and plundering that he doesn't need to hold down a steady job. He's not, uh, he's not, uh, it's like a drug dealer does not need to work at Burger King. He makes plenty of money off of his ill-gotten gains. Uh, attempts to rehabilitate him really require you to make him believe that he'll make a better li- living working nine to five than he will selling drugs, which is a very difficult sell indeed. Um, essentially, the message is crime pays, and therefore, because of the success and because the the fields of the people who are oppressed are, are completely cursed by him, therefore, he, he does not feel any need whatsoever to act as a farmer or a vintner. I think that this is the fo- this is a parable. Meaning as follows, just as dry and heat, chom va 
or Siavachom, melt away the snow water into water and then into nothing, so do they miss the way into the graves. Now again, sticking to the rule of plural, referring to the oppressed, it's not that the sinners go into the graves for their sins, but because of their actions, the innocent incorrectly get evaporated, so to speak, into the ground, which should not be their lot in life, in the same way that snow gets evaporated, first turned into water, and then evaporated by the cruel heat and uh, and dryness. Yishkachayu rechem mitakorima Four-part sentence. He, again, sticking to the rule of singular is the sinner. He, the sinner, forgets the womb. That seems to be a metaphor for his wife. But it's also hinting that he forgets his mercy. And as any good husband knows, it's your wife that, uh, you know, that really makes you calm and understands sympathy and mercy. So if you lose your wife, you lose touch with your wife, you lose, I think, a good sense of, uh, of the calmness and mercifulness that, uh, that a woman brings. I hope I'm not being sexist here. I hope I'm not turning any people off. So if I'm not speaking for you, I would like to speak anyway for the author. Keep in mind that the word rachamim, mercy, comes from the noun rechem, meaning womb, which means that the very definition of the emotion, of the abstract emotion of mercy, was the feeling that a woman had for that which was growing in her womb. Anyway, getting back to the verse, Mitakori Ma, his sweet one is now decayed. It's referring to his wife. She's become worms. It, that is the womb, uh, it will not be remembered. And she is broken like a young sapling. The word avla, again, from olel, meaning a young or a an infant a tree. Perhaps Eov is describing the immorality of this person and, 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 and the kind of cruelty he shows in his family life and to his, uh, in his marriage and to his wife, again, without being punished and without without living the, uh, the expected consequences, without receiving the expected consequences that one would expect when one does bad things to one's uh, family and wife. Continuing in this in this vein, He, the wicked, does bad things to the barren woman. Again, I'm sorry, lo teled, and she does not give birth. And again, obviously, since she doesn't give birth, then she's barren. But what it really means to say is, because he will not allow her to give birth, I guess because he doesn't sleep with her, he treats her badly in some way, she becomes a status of an akaras. Uh, it's like that status change that we've seen before. And he does not help out the widow, v'almana lo yiyeti. He drags the mighty with his strength, this wicked person. He becomes elevated himself, but he places no trust, or perhaps he does not support the living. That is, he raises himself up, but he leaves other people in the dirt. From here on, the accusation for all these bad things that the wicked gets away with without any kind of comeuppance, without any type of consequence, is laid directly at God's doorstep by Eov. He, God, gives security to him, the sinner, and he, the sinner, leans on it. And his, that is God's, eyes are on their ways. That means he sees what they do, he allows what they do, and therefore inexorably he supports what they do. If he would just 
lift his eyes a bit. The word eyes is not there, but I think it's referring to the eyes of the previous verse. If he would just lift them up a bit, then the wicked would cease to exist. If he would just lower them a bit, instead of looking directly on them and supporting them with his gaze, they would shrivel away. And like the cap of a wheat grain, that is the part that sticks off the top of a grain of wheat, they would, the wicked would dry out. Which means all God would have to do would not lend them support, and they would cease to exist. But God is not doing that. He is looking in their direction, and therefore they are successful. If any of this is false, who will prove me wrong? And who will nullify, that's the word al, like lo, who will nullify my words? Eo throws down the gauntlet, he knows what he knows, he's seen what he's seen, that the world is simply unjust, based on his descriptions. And since he believes that God is all-powerful, he didn't believe in God, he wouldn't have any kind of problem, but since he believes in God, and he believes that God is all-powerful, then that one look away by God would problem-solve, the whole problem would be over. And because of that, he can't reconcile everything that's going on in the world, everything that's happening to him, with his sense of how justice should run from God.